You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. So did the baseball Hall of Fame voters pitch a shutout or did they take <laughs> their ball and go home? We'll get into that. No new inductees into the Hall of Fame. First time that's happened since 2013, which happened to be the first year that Clemens and Schilling and Bonds were on the ballot. So we've reached a bit of a standstill when it comes to some of these giant names in the sport of baseball. And the decision this year was let none of them in. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. And don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We had a really fun Pre-party yesterday, you can only get if you subscribe. Digital-only content, uh, hearkening back to the B96 bash of 1996. You'll get it once you listen. Or maybe you won't, and you'll be just as confused (laughs) as we were yesterday. Either way, enjoy it. Um, So, yeah, the baseball stuff. We're going to get into into Kobe Bryant a little bit today as well. Um, Some interesting looks at how his death has affected former teammates and people around the league one year later and in the time since his uh, sudden passing. But on this baseball tip, Fitz, you know, when we were recording around the horn today, taping it, uh, Tony Reale kind of went off on, this is a big miss. This is not just a shrug, okay, we'll get back at the voting next year. And in the meantime, they'll induct last year's honorees that didn't have a ceremony because of COVID. That he was, he was concerned that baseball has a problem of not being able to figure out exactly how to recognize and acknowledge a generation of players. I think the hardest part for me here, and, and look, I think it's important to start by acknowledging fandom. And uh, and for me, because I didn't grow up a baseball purist, I don't have some of the attachments that some baseball purists have. And Hall of Fames, at the end of the day, are there for acknowledgement of great players, but they're also there for the legacy of the game and for the fans to experience it and grow and love that legacy. So I understand that my, my thoughts on this might be different if I'd grown up uh, one of the people that loved going to the ballpark and charting the games and, and talking about baseball stories from days gone by. It's hard for me to imagine conversations about baseball that don't involve some of the names that we consistently talk about here. So, you know, this is a a weird section for Major League Baseball to be in because they're trying to figure out how to do what they feel is right uh, for acknowledging players, but also do what they feel is right for the integrity that it takes to get into the hall. It's sort of a lose-lose situation because who are you trying to make happy? I don't I don't even know that baseball purists and baseball mega fans can agree on how to handle that, which puts the Hall of Fame in a difficult position. To have no inductees, though, just feels it feels stunning, and it feels like it's a miss by Major League Baseball to come in today and say there are no people that warrant getting into this hall, to me, is absolutely a miss for the sport. I think if the list of names wasn't that thrilling, I'd be fine with them saying we are not required to move someone into this very honored space. I think there's arguments that people make against the Basketball Hall of Fame that it's too inviting, that it's too easy to get in. There's too many names. It's not nearly as much of an honor. I think the nice thing about the Baseball Hall of Fame is it does feel like this very elevated class. So I'm okay if the answer is zero if the names aren't those of some of these people that we're seeing get rejected. Now, listen, this is important, and we go over this every year. The Hall of Fame election rules say specifically, quote, voting shall be based upon the player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams on which the player played. That idea, that morality clause, is so important to what we're talking about when we look at guys like Bonds and Clements and Schilling. 
And next year, when we add in A-Rod and David Ortiz, talk about some hot takes next year on mm. that class. But but what's interesting to me is at what point do you gauge the quality of the player and morality that you're deciding on? Because you can go back and find some flat-out racists that are in the Hall of Fame. Do we look at them using today's opinion of language and actions and and conduct? Or do we look at it during their time and how we judge them then? For Schilling, do we look at who he is after baseball and the things that he's said and done and supported that are unconscionable? Or do we look at the character that people thought he had or that he expressed throughout his playing career? Where do we draw the line? And that's a tough question to ask. And before anybody presses send to either of us, let me remind you that the rules for every sport differ on Hall of Fame. For example, the NFL uh, says that specifically you're not supposed to take anything into account that happens off the field. So when it comes time for the NFL to make their decisions about Hall of Fame voters or Hall of Fame inductees, I should say, or anyone that's even currently in the Hall, it doesn't matter if you killed somebody, you can still be a Hall of Famer in the NFL. Like the, Every sport is different. So Major League Baseball has drawn their line in the sand. What's what I can't stop thinking about was our conversation last week about Hank Aaron and uh, a really incredible to get some of the insight and stories of 1974 when he felt like his life was in danger. And and you think about the way he was being treated, not just by fans, but by other players in the sport. I mean, when you have that portion of your history, that's such a loud and vocal part of the story that needs to be told in that moment. How do you then navigate having Hall of Famers that played in that era that may or may not have been part of that? While at the same time looking at Kurt Schilling and saying, yeah, but this is about what he's saying and what he's tweeting and what he's doing right now. I mean, where is the cutoff? Where's the line? And that's that's difficult. I mean, I would have a hard time trying to be judge and jury for somebody for morality when it comes down to their, their stances and their views because that's such a different world than asking what did they contribute to Major League Baseball. And frankly, that's also so different than allegations of steroid use or allegations of betting on games, cheating around the game. Like that's much different than saying you don't get in because your views and your stances are too radical to be associated with baseball post playing career. You're right. It's and it's it's not an easy answer to say you're better off or 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 worse off to include that in in the decision making. Because it's not great to be a member of a Hall of Fame that does include murderers, right? You want to feel like this is an elevated class of person, not just physically and with their athletic gifts, but they're a part of something very special. And that's They're tainted. representatives of the game, right, Sarah? Yeah, like, I mean, exactly. they, are, they are truly the people that are supposed to be standing, not, not just as, as statues in the hall, but when you watch them and learn about them and feel their, their, their importance, it's, it is about like, the, the representation right. of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. But to your point, then you've assigned people who are experts in baseball with being experts in morality. And where you draw the line for someone's words or behavior or associations. And to compare murder with domestic violence, with political opinions, with, in the case of Schilling, some really, really abhorrent things. So uh, the conversation will continue and we'll get into it and we'll actually read a letter or parts of it. It's quite long that Kurt Schilling composed to the Hall of Fame voters yesterday before this news of his refusal and 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 his being 16 votes short even came up 
Uh, he was the closest. He was up four votes from last year. And there were 14 blank ballots, too. We'll get into that later. We also have a solution that we think is the best. Uh, so we'll get all to that, uh, get into all of that a little bit later in the show. But coming up, uh, we're going to talk about the big news of the day in the football world. And that's Aaron Rodgers continuing to keep us guessing about what's next. It's coming up on Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and more at Progressive.com. In just a few minutes, we will be joined on the Goodyear Hotline by Tim Kirkjian. We'll get all of his thoughts on all things uh, Major League Baseball as the uh, Hall of Fame vote is out and no one got in. But in the meantime, all eyes today have been on the, uh, or all ears, I should say, Sarah, have been on Aaron Rodgers. If it's a day of the week, we're going to hear from Aaron Rodgers right now. He was on the Pat McAfee show and uh, talked a little bit, gave a little more clarity to the mindset and some of the comments he's made and really made it clear that he thinks he'll be back, but there are more variables to it than just that. This is what he said with Pat McAfee today. Now, obviously, after the season that I had and, um, you know, potentially win an MVP and, you know, we obviously made it another good run, I don't think that there's any reason why I wouldn't be back, but... There's not many absolutes, as you guys know, in this business. So to to make an absolute statement about something that is is not an absolute, it's just I didn't do it, you know. And I, I guess that's why I went kind of kind of nuts. You buying it, Sarah? I actually am. You know, the way that we've heard Aaron Rodgers speak in the last year, particularly, but especially in the last two years, has been philosophical has been zen, has been thoughtful, has been very much in the moment. This is a guy who spent his offseason visiting the Dalai Lama, right? So when he says there are no absolutes, that's much smarter than someone saying, and I'll throw out a random example, Kyrie Irving, like, I can't wait to re-sign with Boston. <laughs> like <laughs> We dog people when they do dumb stuff like that, and they put out unnecessary declarations that no one asked for, and things don't turn out their way. Uh, and in this case, I think he's being genuine, and he followed it up more specifically today, both on the Pat McAfee show and also when he when he appeared on NFL Live with our with our crew, um, and said, you know, I don't think there's any reason I wouldn't be back, but here's all the reasons why it's not smart of me to assume anything. I mean, if you had taken a poll of the most expert football minds last year before the draft, how many do you think would have said the Packers would draft a quarterback? And right? that, you I think never it... know what's coming. And so it's smart for him to act like this. And it's also smart for him to take the temperature of the Packers by stirring up a little bit of this in the press and seeing how they react. Well, I think you make a great point about the draft last year. And let's face it, any door that's being kicked down by by Aaron Rodgers right now was opened by the Packers' decision to draft a quarterback. This is part of what you take on when you draft a quarterback in the first round. It's not just about when will Aaron Rodgers be done uh, with the organization. It's also about what's going to happen until that, that trigger is pulled. And, and so this becomes the sort of side effect that happens from it. Now, there are some theories to the messaging. And Dan Orlovsky, who we love on this show, love to point him out all the time on Hot Take, uh, Good Take, Full Hot Takes. Full of takes, full of takes. He had a, a take here that I think is interesting when he was on with Max Kellerman talking about Rodgers and the intent of his postgame comments. Aaron kind of made it clear, like, the reality is they did him no favors last year, right? We know this in the draft. They chose the Packers, really the future over the now. And I think what Aaron is doing is just being very intentional and being very smart with how he's saying, like, yo, 
right now, you guys are going to do what I want, and I am going to have a stay on this offseason. And guys like Corey Lindsley and Aaron Jones, like, I want them here. And by the way, in the draft, like, I want you guys to give me what I want. And I think he's just doing um, a good job of, of using the media as a kind of quote-unquote power play. So we talked about this on Around the Horn, and I'll say this about Aaron Rodgers. First of all, these contract negotiators, these agents and folks do such a brilliant job of figuring this out because this is a guy who we googly-eyed over his contract when he signed it a couple years ago for its size. And here we are now already ready to relitigate it because he's fifth highest paid and because he's out of guaranteed money. Sort of wise in some ways for them to front end all of that guaranteed money so that he can come back and argue now that not only is he underpaid compared to his MVP caliber season, but also he's out of guarantees so that they have to give either a a, a matter of support for him or prove to him that they don't have long-term plans. So for me, even if he has no desire to leave, being a little bit elusive in the way he speaks about it, talking about the mystery of the future and nothing is guaranteed and that maybe there's some contract negotiations that need to go down are as much about money and wanting to get paid more because he deserves it as they are about being able to go to them with this and say the way you react to me wanting either longer term or more money or a renegotiation of the cap hit and everything else is going to tell me a little bit more about the kind of control you have over the next couple years of my career and whether I want to do what Tom Brady did. And, and say, fine, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere that's willing to be all in for the very short window that I have. If you're already looking ahead to Jordan Love and you know that you don't want to have him on your roster and not play him, you're going to make that pretty clear in the conversations we have about my contract. Well, I think that's a great point, by the way, and and smart to to look at it that way. I hadn't thought of it that way. And if he does go in and get himself more guaranteed money for the next couple of years, I mean— Let's be real. We're talking about a 37-year-old quarterback. He'll be 38 going into next season. How many years left does he have that he wants to play? We don't know. So if he can get some some security, some guarantees in the way the contract's written that he won't be essentially looking over his shoulder for the next two years, that's a huge win for him. It it, it ends this conversation. And if you're Aaron Rodgers, as, as well as you're playing right now, that has to be part of your mindset, right? Like at some point you have to be looking at it saying, well, I don't want to go through this every year. I don't want this to be uh, sort of lording over the conversation continually. So getting his contract reworked, getting some some guarantees that force them to keep him for the next two years allows this conversation to be quieted for the next couple of years because that's the one the one thing that makes this very different than Tom Brady is Tom Brady was a free agent so mm-hmm. you know the question they were becomes, done with him <laughs> right and, and like is a team going to give up the farm to acquire a, in the their future really to acquire a 37 38 year year old Aaron Rodgers where you may only have a couple of years with the quarterback like I think it makes the acquisition of Aaron Rodgers tougher if he has to go via trade so that's why this guarantee in this contract I think is significant for him he uh, kind of, you know, has this barometer based on how they react to him, in part because of how his contract will affect their salary cap. If the Packers moved on from him, they would gain salary cap space, and he has no guaranteed money. So he needs it to be either extended or restructured to include guaranteed money and to get proof from them that they intend on keeping him and, and using him beyond just 2021. He has, you know... All of these question marks in part because of the decisions that they made. 
So it would actually benefit them to restructure it either way because they help their salary cap position. They could turn some of that base salary into signing bonus money and protect it over future seasons, and that would affect their cap space. And and they could also offer him up more guarantees to make him feel like he's wanted and committed to. But it How they also... react, or the, or the opposite, right? Or they could make it very clear, oh, we think maybe we got one more year with you, and then we want to move on. Yeah, because you're right. In the short term, it helps them a lot if they could if they rework the contract, no skin off their back. It's that second year that I think would be the key mm-hmm. in everything because realistically, they drafted Jordan Love, but and, and that means in the first round they have five years, up to five years that they can hold him. But that fifth year, when you pick up the fifth year option, you have to pay a, a hefty fee for it, right? So if you're the Packers and you know that year one's already gone, are you willing to let year two and year three also be gone, which will only give you one year to figure out what you're doing with the fifth year option on your quarterback? Like that's sort of a worst case scenario for the team. If the Packers are making their dream scenario it's one more great year with Aaron Rodgers and then in that time Jordan Love proves himself to be the next Patrick Mahomes and suddenly they can move on and have no uh, like no dirty conscience essentially as they let him walk out the door and they get their next quarterback the second year of whatever they're going to be doing is the key yeah 100 percent and also how Aaron Rodgers truly feels about this team because there was a lot of conversation about whether there was conflict between him and Matt LaFleur when he first arrived. And a lot of that, I think, was media creation, right? LaFleur said an offhand thing about audibles and the way that he runs his offense. And everyone said, oh, they're going to hate each other. He's taking away his power. And what we've seen is Aaron Rodgers have this year an MVP season and last year a great season. And and they seem to be a good fit. But does he believe that the front office is going to make the decisions to give him the kind of talent that he needs to get past what is now his albatross, that that NFC championship game. And that, to me, is the biggest thing, is how much does he want to be loyal to Green Bay and believe that they can win it all? And how much is he going to say, my window is this small now, I'm going to go to a team built to win and that's going to dump a ton of money into right now to win it with me? I'm telling you, sir, it just keeps coming back to Deshaun Watson in my head. If Deshaun Watson is actually able to come in and say, I don't care about my contract, you're going to trade me. How many quarterbacks around the league with that level of power are going to look around? And Aaron Rodgers would be one and say, you know what? If Deshaun can do it, like, mm-hmm. hey, th- this is a different world for the NFL, and it's going to change the way contracts are viewed with, with quarterbacks and teams for the future. All right, we'll keep breaking it down. But in the meantime, we're going to bring in a Hall of Fame voter to weigh in on the big announcement tonight for Major League Baseball. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. One of our guys behind the glass said, tell Tim Kirkshin to sing along to this one. I don't know if this is Tim's wow. favorite. We're going to find out. I don't know if he's a Kesha you fan. Know, we used to we used to cover this in the Bay Perry. We covered Timber for quite a while. Did you really? Yeah, I would love I to hear the, your fiddle solo on Timber. I, I the, the harmonica part I played on fiddle, and we used it as a transition into Chainsaw, a song that wow. hit for us that was about uh, cutting down a tree with the chainsaw. Nice. Well, I used to change the word to Tinder and make fun of my friends when they were trying to get some strange. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining us now, someone who deserves a much better introduction than whatever trash just spewed from our mouths in that couple minutes right there. ESPN MLB insider Tim Kirkshin. Tim, thanks for the time. My pleasure. Let's talk about this Hall of Fame vote. Would you describe it as the voters pitching a shutout or taking their ball and going home? Well, it it's pitching a shutout here. 
and I'm not surprised at all by the results. This is what I think we all anticipated in the last few weeks when we saw the voting start. Um, it's just another case. Uh, what, what I am surprised by is that there was no move, very, very little movement forward by Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling. Because there were no f- really first-time Hall of Famers on the ballot this year, it was pretty much wide open, and they really didn't move at all, which doesn't bode well at all for next year. But it's just another reminder, especially with Bonds and Clemens, if you have a connection to PEDs. There is a hardline faction of voters um, for the Hall of Fame who say, if you have a connection, you're not getting my vote. And even though both of these guys, Clemens and Bonds, have moved up significantly over the years, um, they haven't gotten close enough with only one year to go for next year. So I'm not encouraged for their sake that they're going to make it next year either. We're talking to ESPN Major League Baseball insider Tim Kirchin. So, Tim, obviously Kurt Schilling has been very loud about the fact that he didn't get in, and much of that has to do with the the things that he's said and the things he supported since he stopped playing. So how should that morality affect someone's ability to get into the hall? Well, that's why this this job now is so difficult to do. I voted for Kurt Schilling. I have voted for Kurt Schilling every year. And even though some of the things he said and done have made me uncomfortable, I am voting on him as a baseball player, not for his political views almost 10 years after he stopped playing. So that's how I can justify voting for Kurt Schilling. But I have several friends I know who are voters who just told me um, because of how active he is on Twitter with some of the things he says they are not voting for him, period. That, that's where we are right now. And, you know, this used to be such a, such a great and special exercise, and it still is the greatest honor I have as a baseball writer. It's the greatest privilege I have. But the job is so much harder than it used to be to try to figure out what to do with steroid users and others. It's a very, very tricky process now. Do you think that the Baseball Hall of Fame is better off for having the, the morality clause in their decision-making? Yes, I think there should be a character clause in there, and there is. But the question is exactly how do you use the character clause? Um, I'm not real comfortable being the moral arbiter of all things, and that's, again, the hard part Uh, in making decisions like this. But sure, I think there needs to be character, but we also have to recognize that over the years in baseball, you know, there are a lot of people in the Hall of Fame who are not great people. And there are people who did things that you look at and say, well, this guy's in. Why are we keeping this guy out for doing that when clearly there are bad guys and cheaters and everything else in the Hall of Fame? Um, That's the tricky part. I mean, it's, it's just hard to tell is... The Hall of Fame, a museum that just chronicles the history of baseball, or is it some sort of holy place, or is it both? These are the questions that we have to answer every year on this, and the answers keep getting harder and harder, at least they are for me. So then should the Hall of Fame make change or make some sort of definitive statement for all voters on what to expect so that there is continuity? Well, I would like to have a nationwide discussion on this with the Hall of Fame, with, you know, current Hall of Famers, with media people, with those who don't vote, and and have 
just a, a, a nationwide discussion and discuss, you know, what are we doing here? Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing this the right way? Because I can tell you, and I don't want any sympathy for this. I'm just telling you, when I fill out my ballot every year, I'm no longer satisfied with what I've done. I just don't feel like I ever get it right anymore because I don't think there are any more right answers. Uh, that's not to say I'm wrong. It's just I just don't feel like I got it right. And that's part of the issue here is there's so many thorny problems out there. We could use a little bit more help with the steroid era in itself. I mean, they just took baseball, just took this incredibly cumbersome issue and flipped it into the laps of the writers and said, all right, you guys figure this out. Well, that's a really hard thing to figure out. And yes, I would like a little help on this. I think we could all use a little help on this. It's Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to the great Tim Kirkshin, ESPN MLB insider is the Hall of Fame uh, decides to elect nobody this year. They will honor those who did not have a ceremony last year. I want to move on to a couple other things, but I wanted to ask you quick. It certainly seems like from the very lengthy letter that Kurt Schilling sent to the uh, voters and then released on on social media that he believes that the that the 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 writers and those who voted are frauds who don't know him, and that he's going to leave it up to um, the 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 committee uh, a couple years from now. Do you think it's likely that? the Veterans Committee will vote for him and these other guys that don't seem to be making much headway with the writers? Well, that's a really interesting question. I've been on four of those special committees over the years, and it seems logical with only 16 people voting and you have to get 12 out of 16 votes that it would be slightly easier that way than going through 400 ballots. But And let's face it, uh, guys who have went all the way through the writer's process without getting in, Alan Trammell, Jack Morris, Harold Baines, made it through these special committees. So I guess in theory, um, Kurt Schilling might have a point there. However, I know when you put former players on the ballot, uh, they look at, you know, cheating, whatever you want to call it, steroids, whatever you want to call it, in a slightly harsher vein than even some of the writers. So I I don't think there's any guarantee by any means that it will be easier to get through a veterans committee ballot than it will through the writers ballot. Talking to Tim Kirkchen about the hall of fame vote today. Uh, Do you have any issue 14 blank ballots? I mean, that that seems like that makes a difference right now. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on it? Well, that's a lot. That's a record. And that just means that 14 voters did not think that anyone was worthy of the Hall of Fame on this year's ballot. Now, let's keep in mind, it was not a great year or really good year for first timers on the ballot. And let's also remember, we've had an enormous number of players go in in recent years. You know, we had three, four, even five guys go in. It was a golden age of great, great players. But now, just how things work, it, we, it's dried up a little bit now. And um, I can't imagine voting for no players on this year's ballot. But 14 people handed in their ballot saying, I'm not voting for anyone because I don't think anyone on this ballot is a Hall of Famer. And that's what happens when 413 people vote. Um, there are going to be all sorts of different looks at the voting. Tim Kirkshin with us. Let's talk about these notable free agent signings. Any big reaction from you to JT Realmuto and the Phillies or the Marcus Simeon Blue Jays signing? Well, the Phillies had to re-sign Realmuto. They were not a good team last year, under 500. 
They're in a division with the Braves, who are really good, with the Mets, who are demonstrably better and still not doing, still not done in the free agent market. They're still in there for Trevor Bauer. The Nationals have gotten better, and the Marlins made the playoffs last year. So the Phillies had to do something. Rio Muto is the best catcher in the game. He's a team leader. He's a tremendous player. And they had to resign him if they were going to have any chance of contending in this division. Now they have to figure out center field and shortstop. They need to go get another starting pitcher. And they need to continue to try to shore up that bullpen. But Real Muto is where it had to begin for the Phillies. As for Simeon to the Blue Jays, again, a great move by the Blue Jays. One year, $18 million. They've solved center field with George Springer. They've added Kirby Yates for the end of the game. They've upgraded their rotation, and now they add Simeon, who can play second. Kevin Biggio plays third, and you can keep Vlad Guerrero Jr. at first. They are a significantly better team than they were six months ago, and maybe only the White Sox are more improved in the offseason in the American League than the Blue Jays. Awesome stuff, Tim. I, I've gotten this by request, and I don't have one, so I'm going to go off the top of my head. Does JT Real Muto look like the guy who asked his high school best friend's mom if she ever want to grab coffee sometime? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got a giggle. I got. I, I'll take it. I'll take it. Thank you, Tim. It, Thanks, Tim. It's okay, Sarah. It's only better what Dad delivers. You know how I, that it's, works. It's, okay. it's not the same, but I did my best. <laughs> Thanks so much. See you. The great Tim Kirchin with us here on Spain and Fitz, brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Coming up, our solution to at least some of this very complicated Hall of Fame conversation. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget, just go out there, subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast, even if you don't like us. Just subscribe to it. It's a help to everybody, and you'll enjoy it. I promise. We give you exclusive content there that you can't get anywhere else. We use some naughty words along the way, and we have some really strange conversations. Yesterday, a good example of that. Sarah, uh, we've been having some strange conversations today about the Hall of Fame and what should be done. But I, you know what? I'm I'm going to say it. I'll say it boldly. Nobody's called me and asked me yet, but I feel like I've solved it. I got it all figured out. I know exactly okay. what they all right. need to do. All right? Lay it on me. All they need to do is build a wing to the Hall of Fame. And in that wing, they just make it essentially the wing of controversy. You put everybody in there that's got some sort of a weird issue around them or some sort of an issue that makes everybody uncomfortable or some reason that they may not be in the normal wing, but you can't tell the story of baseball without talking about them. You put all of them in a wing, and you allow it to give context to the steroid era, context to what's going on, context to why they're in that wing particularly. You open the wing without a glorious ceremony, so everybody doesn't get the usual uh, pomp and circumstance that would come with it. It's just a wing that's now been opened. They can take their family if they want to go see it, and it's a way to make sure that every era of Major League Baseball is described in great detail. It gives everybody the information they need, and it stops pretending that we're all going to be oblivious to chapters of baseball and names that people like me grew up watching that need to be included in the conversation about the history of the sport. I agree with you. Uh, I, Somebody I, put that I off think, and keep that. <laughs> the rare occasion. Um, no, I think the the answer to me has always been, how do you acknowledge this segment, this generation, without giving them the equal spot alongside those that others view with a certain gravitas that could never be achieved by those tainted by steroids? And the answer is that wing. 
because you can't tell the story of baseball without Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds, with whatever PED usage he had, was still infinitely better than lower-level, no-name Hall of Famers who also took steroids and were not the greatest. He still is a guy whose numbers will be atop a lot of the records for a long time, maybe forever. And we can't say that the ones we know used, or even in some cases suspect used, should be penalized in ways that others that we can't know for sure weren't. I don't think that's fair. And and so while I don't like cheaters, and while I don't like the idea of honoring them with the same exact glory and respect that we do for someone that we believe and know in some cases well before this was an issue, uh, did it cleanly and did it well, um, I do think that there's a place for them. And that wing is a great way for baseball to say, we're not really sure all the you know what that went down during this stretch of time, but we know that these were the greats then, and baseball's story isn't told without them. Schilling does not apply there, and that's where I need the other half of your fix because the steroid one, I could get all in on. They don't go to the same ceremony. There's a wing that's built. You bring them all in. They still get honored. You still recognize their greatness, but you do it a little differently. How do you fix the Schilling problem? And yeah, if you don't, don't want to get back to that, we could stick with the, with the steroid issue. But that that still is a bugaboo for me because it's not as it's not as simple. Same with Pete Rose. Pete Rose should absolutely be in the Hall of Fame. How, is he in that wing? Is he in a? Is it? Is there a different wing? Well, Pete Rose. <laughs> well, like, okay, so Pete Rose bet on games, right? So uh, that not games that he was playing in, but he bet on games. So I can understand putting him in the the Hall of Shame portion of it. The the wing. I think he could. <laughs> can be we actually call steroids. it that and see who yeah. shows up for the ceremony? I, mean, I think that'd be remarkable. <laughs> and you know, and, and I think it's important. It looks like it a tells... giant needle. You take an <laughs> elevator up to the top, and then <laughs> you got to tell the stories, though, right? So I like that the shilling one is much more difficult for me. If a Major League Baseball Hall of Fame voter believes that Kurt Schilling on the field was a Hall of Famer, I'm going to I'm gonna say this. I, I, I've, I've thought back and forth on this, but I've made up my mind. If you believe that his play should put him in the Hall of Fame, then I think he should be in the Hall of Fame because morality is a slippery slope when you look back at the history of sports, when you look back at a sport that dealt with segregation for so long, when you look back at the way and the culture of sports and how they treated at times different minorities, different people with different sexual preferences. Like If we want to start to get into the treatment of individuals, that becomes a very uh, – that's a huge moral police portion that I think is difficult right. for me to apply to a player. So – if Kurt Schilling's play in the mind of a voter would put him in the hall, then he should be in the hall to me. It, it, that's a much different category than the steroid area, which we're trying to era, which we're trying to com- compartmentalize and see how to navigate. Real quick, we don't say sexual preference anymore. I know you were speeding through all those things. No big deal. Orientation, you're right, or you're sexuality, because right. it's, it's not a preference. A thousand yeah. percent. But either way. Uh, to your and, point, and, and you're right. As someone that works as much in LGBTQ rights as I do, I, I that's no a, worries. A I know you're on the right. I, I know. Mistake, I, so I you're just speeding that. through, so no worries. But I think you're right, and and the thing is, there are people who would argue that Schilling doesn't belong. I mean, you can. Clemens is the only pitcher with a higher career WAR than Schilling who isn't in the Hall of Fame, but some of his numbers are a little meh. Right, his wins, 216, are tied for 86th. 127 ERA plus, tied for 40th. His starts, 436 of them, 95th. Uh, his war, 26th all-time among pitchers. Four top five Cy Young finishes, that's tied for 24th. Uh, his 15th all-time in strikeouts, right? There are some numbers that you pick and say absolutely, and there are some numbers 
Uh, and, and some of those, of course, are, you know, he got better in the playoffs, right? He was better at the most important times. Uh, and then there are others where people say, I don't know, even if it weren't for the character stuff, he's on the edge for me. And, and I think that's a big part of this is if you're torn at all, that other stuff is what maybe puts you over the edge. Yeah, and I agree. And that's why I say that if it's, to me, like compartmentalize all of that out and then say, okay, is he, is he a Hall of Famer or not? I don't think that being a great person should influence you to put him in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think being a person with questionable views on so many things should put you uh, into uh, the category that keeps you out of the Hall of Fame. The other the, the steroid wing on it is so much easier for me to see because baseball yeah. uh, loves history so much. Baseball uh, fans and are so passionate about it and, and they're right. passionate about telling the story. And to me, like. I think of my family, like my mom and dad never really told stories about my childhood so, or my, my ancestry. So I really don't know much about the huge sections of my family lineage. Uh, baseball is the opposite of that. Baseball is that grandfather that sits down and tells you the same stories over and over and over again. That's part of the chime and charm and the beauty of the sport. I don't think you can pick and choose when you're doing that. And that's what it feels like they're doing by not at least acknowledging the steroid era as a whole and some of the names that played it. But that's, again, that's much, to me, Sarah, that's way different than, wow, look at what this guy continues to tweet since he left the sport. That's such a different category. It's Spain and Fitz, and you're right, because even Tim Kirkshen seemed a little bit torn on the idea of, yeah, it's better to have some sort of morality involved in this very high honor, but I'm not sure exactly where the line should be drawn. And that's why it's so interesting. And he did vote for Schilling, and he did say these things he's saying years later aren't a part of it for me. But I can also see how this beautiful moment at the Hall of Fame, if you have someone standing up there that is, you know, promoted hanging journalists and blowing up Muslims and attacking transgender people and every other thing under the sun, supporting insurrectionists. And, you know, all of that to me, the the pure idea of that is so cringeworthy and sad as to ruin that day for everybody else involved and everyone there. And that's, that's tough to reconcile. Yeah, you're a thousand percent right. And nothing about that image in my mind seems clear or easy. So this is, we'll keep debating it and trying to figure it out. Coming up, though, how the Lakers in the NBA have struggled to cope with losing an icon. We'll talk about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio in the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guest join us on the Goodyear Hotline. And it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Joining us now to offer up some Straight Talk USA Today NBA writer Mark Medina. Mark, thanks for the time. Yeah, Sarah, thanks for having me. Hope you're hanging in there, all things considered. Uh, That's really funny that you said those exact words, because that is the only thing I've said for about a month. Hanging in there, all things considered. Like those yeah, exact unfortunately, words. it's been a theme throughout this year. Yeah, um, it has not gotten better many, than that. Too many things to navigate. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I really liked your story today on, on Kobe Bryant because uh, there's so many voices you can go to on this day in remembrance of his passing and in, in discussing the year since. And, and what I liked about your approach was I do think it's fascinating to look at how people are still affected by it. And we recently lost Hank Aaron. And to compare the two is to understand the gravity of a sudden loss and a feeling of incomplete life. And when a legend passes away at a, at a later age, I think there's some clarity there. And with Kobe, I think the reason that there are so many that you speak to that can't put into words how it affected them is because of the shock and still the disappointment in what was left undone and unsaid. 
Is that sort of a through line for a lot of what people seem to be expressing in the year since and today? Yeah, without a doubt. I think there's two things. One, just the unexpectedness of it all and that, you know, Kobe is only 41 years old, Giannis 13. And there's always constant reminders. Like I was talking with uh, Gary V, the former longtime head athletic trainer, and he lives in Manhattan Beach, California. So there's always planes and helicopters flying over his house because it's close to LAX. And in normal times, he wouldn't think anything of it. But for that to happen every single day, it's just a constant reminder. Um, and then I think the second thing is that when you're looking at Kobe's tragedy in this year, there seemed to be a momentum of there's finally a pivot point of closure, but then something else happened. So, for example, you have the Kobe tragedy. There's obviously the, the immediate shock and grief and anger and all, all the emotions. And then they have the emotions of the first game. And then you think, okay, there's a step forward. But then you have the emotions of NBA All-Star Weekend. And then you think there's a step forward. But then you have the emotions of the memorial service. And then you think, okay, now's the time to take a step forward. But then, if you look at the calendar, that's when the pandemic started striking. And so I think, you know, you combine the tragedy versus everything else that has been so terrible this year, it's been a heavy heart for everyone. And, you know, I don't think based off of talking to the Lakers, people in the NBA, people at Kobe's high school, alma mater at Lower Marion, that this is something that they'll ever get over. I presume with time it will be easier, but I don't think there's ever going to be that feeling of, of closure and acceptance. Well, and we're talking to Mark Medina, USA Today, uh, NBA writer. Mark, that's a really interesting point with COVID because at the time we were talking so much when they tried to put it all sort of into perspective about how this Lakers team would have to find a way to come together through all of this. And then we end up with the COVID year that sort of uh, forced everybody to go in different directions. We end up in a bubble. Like how much closure was, how much did the lack of continuity affect the ability for the, the people that were impacted closely to actually get closure together? Yeah, I think, you know, in a way, because everyone was in the bubble and for the Lakers, you know, look, you don't want to make light of this because it's a really tragic situation and fairness to the Lakers they wanted to win a championship even before this, but they very much wanted to lean on the impact Kobe made on everyone in the organization and just what he embodied with the maniacal competitiveness to try to win a championship. And so that was a very real thing in the bubble. And when they won the championship, there were a lot of emotions, partly because of Kobe's tragedy. But I think you know, after that happened, it's not like, okay, this is the final healing moment. There was then the ongoing challenges with the pandemic and then just dealing with the loss. I mean, understandably so, you know, you had a mix of guys that just frankly did not want to reflect about Kobe and relive January 26 of 2020 because it was so painful. And then you had people that, you know, just were kind of um, sharing stream of consciousness thoughts of, reliving that day and how they learned the news and how they try to navigate the tragedy since then and what they've done. So it's, it's been hard. And I I think that when you're looking at this day specifically compared to, you know, January 26th of 2020, 
it's obviously a lot easier. There's not the immediate grief. There's not the amount of, you know, sentimental memorials at Staples Center and at the Academy. But that's partly because of the the pandemic. Um, but it, there's still a lot of grief that people are dealing with internally. And that's, I think, like with everything in 2020, you have your good days and then you have your bad days. Um, I think the best example is talking to Lower Marion coach Craig Downer, who coached Kobe. He felt like he reached kind of this this better sense of place after going to the memorial and dealing with the immediate grief. But then when he watched the Last Dance documentary and they showed the episode with Kobe Bryant and, and Michael Jordan, he just lost it and he couldn't he couldn't watch the rest of it. And he decided to put the pictures that he has of Kobe in his house away because he just felt like those were just too many painful reminders of what happened. So it's come about randomly and it's been tough. I don't know when it will ever go away. It's Spain and Fitz here, Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to USA Today NBA writer Mark Medina on the Goodyear Hotline. You know, Mark, I wrote a story last year. Uh, I was on a plane to Super Bowl when the news broke during the, the Pro Bowl. I was watching on my plane television and and they announced it. And I wrote a story about the complications of trying to remember Kobe and how many would prefer not to see him in his totality, uh, how some of the the incident in Colorado and some of the flaws in the man seemed inconvenient speed bumps in trying to remember him for his greatness at basketball and for the things that brought us joy about him. But I think in writing about it, one of the things I wanted to express, and for those who didn't want to hear it and sent me death threats uh, they didn't get, was that he also was robbed of the opportunity to grow into a better understanding of that and perhaps even express himself differently about it. Uh, He often would say he wanted to be a better person every day, that that was his goal. And we saw him become a storyteller and a dad and a coach and all these things outside of basketball. And because of how complete he seemed to be as a human and growing into that completeness in a way we hadn't seen as a basketball player and as a youth, it felt like there was maybe some of that coming when it came to his imperfections and being honest about them. Have you felt like in talking to people about him, there is a, a, a partly a sadness about the things that were just emerging from him, whether that be as a role model for younger players or connecting to media in ways that he had held them at a different distance during his play. Cause to me, that was a big part of the loss was he seemed like he was opening up a second half that was going to be quite different from the first. Yeah. Well, first, sir, I'm really sorry to hear about the death threats you you were receiving. I mean, that's just absolutely unacceptable and ridiculous and hope I appreciate been able that. to navigate all that. But to answer your question, uh, yes, that, that I think has perpetuated the sadness because I think during the final years of his career and certainly post-retirement, he was completely at peace with his, with his NBA achievements, his legacy, his flaws, his shortcomings. You know, he was very gracious when LeBron James was about to surpass him on the NBA all-time scoring list and, you know, said to me that any idea that he feels like his territory is getting taken away is juvenile. Um, and so I think that there was a fascination of here is a guy that's about to start his second act of his career. He's had so much accomplishments and success already with getting an Oscar and getting a series of books off the ground that are selling well and a podcast and doing stuff for ESPN with detail. Um, but I know talking with him, he felt like he's just getting started. He wanted to start doing some live performances and turning the books into movies. Um, you know, there were people around him that thought that, like, he wanted to be this George Lucas type figure within the storytelling realm. So, 
you know, as much as he accomplished with his second act, it was very unfulfilled. And I think, you know, the the other thing to answer your question about, you know, the sexual assault case with Colorado, it's very difficult to kind of put in the proper perspective. You, you certainly, you know, when you're looking at everyone's life, you have to include the good and the bad. Um, but I think the thing that's very difficult is, A, you know, it never reached a court, and we don't know the exact reasons why and it was why it was settled. Um, but because of that uh, settlement, you know, there, there just haven't been an opportunity for all involved to make any public comments. And so that's, you know, certainly challenging of how do you address it. Um, But it's totally fair and totally warranted to include that in part of his biography because it was obviously a significant part of his chapter in his NBA career. Mark, we appreciate the time and the stories that you've written on this. Thanks for the insight. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you for having me and all the best to you guys. USA Today's. Mark Medino with us here on Spain and Fitz, giving you the Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up, there's a lot to get to today, and there's no way we could do it all unless we do it in quickies. That's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Oh, that one hurts. That one hurts. (laughs) I couldn't get it. I just, I couldn't see it in my head. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, S. And F on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius Ooh, XM Channel 80. <laughs> We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Uh, and ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average. Call or click today. Find out if they could save you hundreds on your car insurance. I better be very careful how I talk my way through this because it's quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. That's right. Let's start with LeBron last night. Holy cow. This was a Michael Jordan, and I took that personally moment, if there ever was one. He's in the midst of their game, and he looks over and spots a Cavs employee clapping after a missed shot in the third. Looks at him, gives him the kind of death stare that should be memed, just like Jordan looking at the iPad laughing, and then proceeds to drop 46 points. At 36 years old, the most recent time a uh, a Laker at that age dropped a 40-point game was Kobe Bryant putting up 60 in his career finale. Uh, do you like this, getting motivation from an employee clapping for his own team, or is it a little silly? Well, look, it's a little silly to give the motivation, but it's also a just a stupid mistake by the team employee. Whoever that employee <laughs> is should not be allowed to watch the games in Sit on the your arena. Hands. <laughs> and, like, this is just simple. You made LeBron mad. Like, the one thing you don't want to – you've already got your hands full trying to beat the Lakers or even compete with the Lakers. Why are you going to try and enrage the guy that you know can end you? Like, this is, this is me going in and taunting one of the former offensive linemen that work at our company. Like, it's just a dumb idea. <laughs> So for whoever did it, they shouldn't be allowed to go to a game for the rest of the season. They should have to sit at home. Wow. Think about what they did. Just for cheering his own team's excellent defensive play. Uh, It is a little silly. Yeah, it is a little silly. But at the same time, this many years into your career in a regular season game on a team that's defending champions, you got to find something to motivate you. So I'm cool with it, right? If if you want to use that guy, uh, I'm cool with it. It's kind of like by the end of the last answer, like, okay, so if you walk in a restaurant and Jordan's there, not only can you not say hi to him, you also have to say hi to him. 
<laughs> like that's that's where we landed on that. It was like there's nothing you can do that he's not going to use against you. Uh, all right, moving on. Quickies. Let's talk about Deshaun Watson. God, we that, talked that, about this. We, wait, 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 wait. Can we just, can you hit that button? Sexy like, voice guy. On. Let's hear it again. Say the sexy voice guy again. Quickies. Ooh, oh whoa. That one kind of, that one kind of felt like it had some deep bass in it. I think my yeah, room shook a little bit. I got all the, um, I, I, I got all the feels right now. <laughs> Deshaun Watson, uh, according to reports, is prioritizing the Jets and the Dolphins as the two teams he has most interest in. He, of course, doesn't get to choose where he gets traded, but he does have a no-trade clause. So if he wants out, he needs to want out enough to go wherever they're going to send him. What do you make of these two teams being top of his list? Look, I could buy into the Dolphins concept on it because they did spend a ton of money that worked on their defense. Uh, they they have a coach that seemed, people seem to be buying into. Like, There's a lot that I can really like there. I don't understand the Jets part of it. I mean, to me, this feels like somebody this, – this has got to be a rumor for somebody trying to drive up value. Like, There is no reason that Deshaun Watson – you know what I want? I want something different than Houston. I want a place that's secure and a place that feels like they're committed to winning and a place that's going to do all the things the right way and a place where I can go out and I can have the best chance to be functional as an athlete i'm gonna pick the jets come on now like that's got to be a rumor floated by somebody all right well i will say this much the Jets, the jets the jets is the thing i tried to say they have the most draft picks of any team in the league over the next two years they have a ton of cap space and they have a head coach in robert Sala that he is supposedly a big fan of and wanted to have interviewed by the texans in fact he was wanted him for the job now, both of these teams are, are are teams that have coaches of color, which, according to the back reporting around why somebody's having these issues with the Texans, is a big deal to him. Um, and, and to your point, like, the Jets are kind of the laughing stock now, but they've been to the conference championships, what, twice in the last decade or so? Um, so they are, they are potentially not far off from returning to being relevant. Uh, so I'm, And it's a good market. Uh, so if he has a connection to the coach in that way, I could see that maybe being the thing that draws him. I just don't see the Texans necessarily wanting to trade him to somewhere that they would have to see often, right? Yeah, I mean, no. if, if you're the Texans, you're aren't you looking for an NFC team? <laughs> Not sending a 25-year-old franchise QB to any team that you're going to have to go up against. So um, interesting to keep an eye on Deshaun. Let's go to the next story. Quickies. By the way, oh! Un- unrelated note, if the, if the Raiders wanted to move the NFC okay. now, I'm totally fine oh, with it. Go all ahead. right. All right, here we go again. Moving on. Deshaun. Quickies. Thank you. We talked about this Karis Levert story uh, the other day. Gets a physical as part of a trade, discovers that he has a mass on his left kidney. And as it turns out, he has gotten a surgery as of uh, yesterday to treat kidney cancer. Expected to make a full recovery. He will be out indefinitely. No further treatment is expected after the surgery that he underwent yesterday. But Fitz, this adds even more to this story that was already, without knowing the full diagnosis, remarkable and and potentially life-saving. Now we hear, who knows when this may have been discovered had he not been involved in the trade. Yeah, I think that's the most incredible part of it is that this was truly a life-saving and could have been a truly life-saving trade. And it's rare that we see something like that happen. And also, by the way, uh, kudos to everybody involved that they didn't make it about the trade. They didn't make it about the NBA. They made it about Karis LeVert. And I think that's an incredible thing for everybody involved to have done. So uh, most important, he's got to get healthy. But just absolutely, I, I can't imagine what this moment in life feels like for him. 
And this is not the only time we've seen this. I was looking at this today. And do you remember the name John Dornboss? He's mostly kind of known now because after his football career, he's a magician and does card tricks. And uh, he's got this great personality. He was on America's Got Talent. He was a finalist there. Uh, But he was a long snapper. And he got traded from the Eagles to the Saints. And they discovered he had an aortic aneurysm. And had he played in that first game with the Saints, had he not had it caught and gotten hit in the chest, he might have died instantly. And so it ended his career and saved his life. It's kind of remarkable when those things happen. Yeah, I, I just can't even I, I can't even put my my brain around the the things that have to align up to allow that to happen. It, it's insane. Right? If you want to read an interesting story, dive into some Dornbos stuff. His mother was killed by his father. He went to a foster home. He was adopted by his aunt and uncle. He became into magic to kind of ease his mind. Really interesting story and really funny dude uh, for all that he's been through. A very interesting cat, John Dornboss. I should have him on my podcast. That's what she said with Sarah Spanning, in case you don't listen to it, um, and talk about that stuff. But, uh, yeah, uh, of course, thoughts go out to Karis LeVert for a full recovery and, and just remarkable that that was the turn of events that led to that. Coming up, an expert's going to tell us where he thinks the Super Bowl point spread will close. It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Jerk. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Series XM, Channel 80. Oh, God. I just can't with we that We were just so bonding about how much we Fitz. hate this song, and of course, what do they do to us? They yeah, drop it on us. We'll get to why this song is important in just a couple of minutes, but first we'll actually get some expertise. I promise this is about to be the, I mean, maybe the 10 funniest moments, minutes that we'll have on ESPN Radio tonight. We're joined now by Joe Fortenbaugh. You can check him out, betting analyst on the Daily Wager. Joe, we'll get to some music stuff in a second, but I want to start, like, I just started dabbling, okay? So, you know, Tennessee has legalized sports gaming, and so I went out there and I got the app, and I just started dabbling and you know i felt really good i felt really confident about kansas <laughs> city the, the line opened at three and a half on the particular app i was on it took me eight seconds to put the uh, bet in at three and a half with the, the chiefs i felt good about it i looked like two hours later and it was down to three should i have waited like give me some expertise here am i better to wait before i place a bet to get closer to the game or do i do it asap to try and hop on the line before it moves well, it's going to depend, right? Like, if you you want to be able to beat the closing number, that's going to be the most important thing. Closing number being, you know, if, if it opens at 8 and you like the underdog and you get the 8 and it closes down at plus 5, that's three points of closing line value. That's very good. But when you're new to this, you just want to try to figure out the nuances. Three is the most important number in all of NFL betting because more games end with a differential of three than any other possible outcome. It's about 15% of outcomes over the last five years, 24-21, 27-24, 31-28. You see where I'm going here. So three is very important. If you like the underdog and you have an opportunity at three and a half, get it. If you like the favorite and you have an opportunity at two and a half or three, get it there. So as of now, Fitz, I would say that you didn't really get the best of it, but don't feel bad. Don't feel bad about the situation. What we're seeing for the third week in a row is what's interesting here. There's a group of professionals that apparently love Tampa Bay. A couple weeks ago against the Saints, the Saints opened as a four favorite. It immediately got bet down to three. Last week, the Packers opened as a four and a half point favorite. It immediately got bet down to three and a half and then closed three. The Super Bowl opens three and a half and now it's at three. 
these same guys, it seems, continue to fire on Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. So there is a sophisticated group out there that does this for a living that likes the Bucs. I don't think we're going to see two and a half at any point. I do think it will go up because when the public gets involved, I think they're going to side with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. So, Joe, I am not a gambler. Every time I try to dabble and dip my toe, I immediately get burned. So I stay away, even though Fitz and I on our picks this year would have made a ton of money if I'd bet on it. But I'm always curious, is it ever worth betting prop bets? Because the very nature of a lot of them, they can be known, right? What color is someone wearing? How long is the anthem going to take? And because of that, you can only win so much. So is it just kind of for the fun of it? Because you're never going to get a big hit on that? First of all, if you're not a professional, which almost none of us are, right, and you don't do this for a living, then I would say look at it as entertainment. Look at it as playing blackjack. Look at it as going to the movies. Don't bet what you can't afford to lose because if you're not a pro at this and you don't run your models and you're not getting the best of the number, then long term it's going to be very difficult for you to win. So look at it as entertainment. But I will say that the prop market offers more opportunity and more value than betting the game spread in total. you got to realize the more popular the sport is, the tougher it's going to be to beat the number because there's more emphasis and more focus placed on putting up a very tough number to beat, a very tough Mm. point spread, a very tough over-under. That's why some of the pros who do this for a living, they bet WNBA, they bet very obscure college basketball conferences because it's tougher to stay on top of all that information night in and night out. So the more obscure a sport is, the more likely the professionals are flocking to it. And when it comes to football, props are becoming very, very popular because it takes a lot of time Time to understand whether or not a certain linebacker might go over six and a half tackles in a matchup. Right. Everyone who does this for a living knows how to set the line for Kansas City and Tampa Bay, but the props is where you can find some value. But what about the like the weird ones? Like, you know, I played the national anthem a bunch, so I know how to time it out to an exact time. So when you see these things, constant reports of like, all right, there'll be a bet you can place on the length of the national anthem. Like what keeps whoever's singing it? What keeps Eric Church from telling his whole band, hey, by the way, we're, we're going to be 145 on this one. Like, how, how does that actually work? But I think they do. It's just that you can't win that much on it. So it, they don't Boom. care about the in-group knowing? Boom. Boom, you're capped on that. You can't make $50,000 bets on the anthem. Now, if you find 200 bookies who will take 500 apiece, then you can find your way to a big number. But you're, you can come to Vegas, and if you talk to the guys, you might be able to bet 100000 500000 a million dollars on this game. But no one's going to let you do that for the national anthem. I will say, and it's a longer story, we probably don't get into it here, the, the biggest bet I ever made in my life was on the national anthem when Pink sang it for the um, Eagles uh, why am I missing on this? I'm an Eagles fan. I should remember who they beat, the <laughs> Patriots. Excuse me. So what happens, and this happens every year, and the secret's kind of out on this, the rehearsals take place either 24 or 48 hours before the game. It varies. And when the rehearsals take place, the singer or singers will generally go through about four or five auditions. They'll go through about four or five rehearsals, and then they'll be done. Somehow, some way, over the last few years, this number has leaked. And when it leaks, everyone in the gambling community not only gets it because everyone's sharing it with one another, you are racing to your sports book to get down as much as you possibly can before the bookmakers realize what's up and they adjust the number. So, mm. for, for example, with Pink, I think the over-under was set at two minutes, and her five rehearsals were all between a minute 53 and a minute 54, so everyone was hammering the under and it came through. See, and that that kind of makes sense, so Sarah, because like most of the time they're playing to a pre-recorded track. Like 
And like I said, every time I've ever played it, we go in and like you got to be right on the nose. So yeah. Look at this. All this expertise coming from Joe Fortenbaugh. You can check him out, obviously, on the Daily Wager. Let's get to what's important here, Joe. Uh, you tweeted <laughs> yesterday a, a debate you were having with your wife that has sent Sarah and I down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and you brought it into our homes. I could have today. It's really uh, not nice of you. <laughs> you. You guys were debating the biggest summer song, the, the song of the summer over the last... 25 years. Did you come up with like a consensus top three list? All right. So I can give you a breakdown here. We were having a drink and we met during the summer that the song in question was being debated. And we listened to the song like 50,000 times over this summer. So she ranks it number one. Now it has a special place in my heart as well. I do not rank it number one. What What's funny is that the vote I have, hundreds of comments have since poured in on this tweet I, not a single person voted for my song. Not wow. a single person mentioned the song. You have I terrible brought up. taste. It's it's terrible. It's absolutely <laughs> terrible. It was it was the summer of my senior year. I had just graduated from high school, so I'll get to that song in a minute. Her pick was Blurred Lines, and Blurred yeah. Lines. Freddie Coleman was on top of it. A lot of people voted yeah. for it. It was not number one. I'll tell you the most popular ones that came through, and p- p- we all admitted to it. Uh, Call me maybe was mm-hmm. obviously up there near the top of the list because whether you liked it or not, you sang it. Like, every one of us was singing that song. The one I can't believe got as many votes as it did, Summer Girls by LFO. Like, yeah. that song, uh-huh. another one, like, as soon as that gets in my head, I'm just sick to my stomach with that. Like then, Chinese food? It makes you sick? <laughs> yeah, like, the whole Abercrombie and Fitch <laughs> wow. thing. Like, I'm 40 years old, so I grew up right in the heart of that. My <laughs> vote, which got literally zero traction, I kid you not, was My Own Worst Enemy by Lit. And I cannot believe oh, not a that's single a good song. person liked that song. I am beside myself <laughs> that I didn't get a single vote. Country okay, Grammar was on there. Yeah, 1999, that yes. song. Here it is. Okay, so let me tell you. Uh, like a couple, like right, right between Christmas and New Year's, a couple friends came over to my backyard with the fire pit because it's the only way we can see each other right now is outside in our backyard in 19 degrees. And we got on the topic of 90s hits and started just playing every song off Spotify that we remember from the 90s. And I will tell you that that song came on and we jumped out of our chairs and yes. our blankets. And we were like, can I forget about the things? Just screaming and dancing like that. That's a banger. That's a great choice. It's not a song of the summer for me. It's not one that I remember taking over my summer, but it's a good song. You know what else was that summer as well? And it's a sneaky one because it's really the only song they had that was popular at all. Steal My Sunshine by Len. Everyone knows that song when it starts. So annoying, though. Just Oh, you would fit. Okay, so really quick, we went over this and we asked ourselves to pick our top three. So I, of course, did more than that. But I'm going to tell you, the songs that I think actually are in the running, if you're going for biggest or best, I'm not saying enjoyable. But the ones that I think of as like this took over the summer, Old Town Road, Macarena, Blurred Lines, Despacito, Fancy. Remember Fancy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado and yeah. All Star by Smash Mouth. Okay. Yeah. Songs I actually enjoy that to me sing like all summer. I knew every word. Get Lucky by Daft oh, Punk. Yeah. Dynamite yep. by Teo Cruz was my jam. Hollaback Girl, Genie oh, in yeah. a Bottle. Okay? okay, And then yeah. my top three in terms of actual enjoyable songs that were songs of the summer and I still want to listen to them all the time. Can't Stop the Feeling by JT, Hot in Here by Nelly, and Party in the USA by Miley. How do you have so, so much time on your hands? That is so broken down by so many different categories. <laughs> said, you I told you, you came into my house. You brought this to my home last night, and then I couldn't <laughs> stop thinking about it. I'll so, tell you this. So- 
Um, in the thread, if you want a side conversation that broke out, Orlovsky threw his vote in there and he got destroyed. That's like, not literally, it, King like, of the most hot people take. were most people were having a civil conversation, which is shocking <laughs> for Twitter. But Orlovsky chimes in with Cruz by Florida Georgia Line, no. and people just went no. to work. He got he got mean. No. He got mean to death. It was incredible. <laughs> I'm just incredible. Say, it did not make my list. I don't love the song, but <laughs> when I stopped touring in country music, the highest selling song of all time in country was Cruz. So yeah. okay. let's well, not let's not let's make not it sound limit like it to like, country. Let's listen to actual good music. Fitz. I mean, oh man, country <laughs> country is good in the summer. Uh, well, I'll quickly say, Sarah, we had many yes. songs in common with our top three. Ooh. I went a little different though. When I went to my top three, I had to, I almost had Nelly didn't quite make it. When I went to my top three, I went Can't Stop the Feeling. Justin Ooh, Timberlake okay. made my yeah. top three. Uh, because he was just on the mind, it's gonna be me in sync two thousand. Like that oh. was that was the summer <laughs> yeah. song of that. Like I was all in on that. Are you but going, I everybody? I don't think any <gasps> anything tops Uptown Funk for me. Oh, like, Uptown, Uptown Funk, Funk is a, yeah. Like good Uptown choice. Funk was just it, Blurred Lines was also close on this. So like the only problem look, with Blurred I, Lines is unfortunately it has it has rape connotations, and once that came out, it's impossible to remove them from it without thinking about it. Oh, that's well, and well, I hadn't thought sorry about to bring that, the party now, down. Yes. I'm so sorry to bring the party down, but that's what you're going to hear from anyone who, if you put it on your list. So, apologies to your wife, Joe. Uh, well, in the cl- yeah, <laughs> she's she would hear that one. One you want to hear and out the other. You are no one's going to take her away from that song. Okay. She All loves right. that song. I would say that the the one that didn't get as many votes, but once people realized what was going on. In the club by Fifty Cent. Oh, like that. Oh, yes. up, we all listened to that a thousand Non-stop. times that summer. Yeah. yeah, I mean that is that is absolutely a spectacular. That's a spectacular work by you. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Joe Fortenbaugh. You can also check out the Daily Wager. Obviously, getting you ready for everything, Joe. Man, it's been fun watching you work so much over the course of football season. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, my friend. You guys are the best. I'm glad you got a kick out of the tweet. Thanks for having <laughs> me on the show, and I'll talk to you guys soon. I've got See more ya. thoughts on this music breakdown. We <laughs> left out a couple of big, important songs. I Plus, know. Uh, I don't know what else we're going to do. We're going to break that down next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN <laughs> Radio, the ESPN app. We'll get to it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Go, go, go. Spain go and Fitz on ESPN Radio. It's your birthday. We're <laughs> Can I tell you a quick funny story about this show once you introduce who we are and where we are? Yeah, she's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. And go ahead. Yes, please. Okay, so I think I told this once, but... Nick Friedel wanted us to go see 50 Cent at Ravinia for his birthday. And we knew it was going to be bad, but we went anyway. And it was me and Brad and Nick Friedel and a bunch of Nick's friends and Nick's mom, Donna. We were all at Ravinia, which is a beautiful place where you put out a nice picnic full of charcuterie plates and cheeses. And we had two different cakes for Nick that separate people bought. I think both of them said, I love you like a fat kid loves cake. And we, uh, we listened to... 50 Cent, not finish a single song. Just get most of the way through and then just move on. And it was terrible and it was not good at all. But we were actually there on his birthday. And when that song came on, our little crew and our little charcuterie plate filled picnic blanket erupted into action so that we could all be yelling, go shawty, it's your birthday on his actual birthday. Is there anything worse than the road trip person that consistently, I get it every once in a while, but consistently only listens to like two thirds of the song and then changes oh, the station. That's my husband. He's oh my either called, we call him DJ Squirrel because it's like, Murr? or DJ Shiny Object because he gets to the first chorus and then it's like, all right, on to the next. I'm like, no, 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 we're, we're into this. We're about to start screaming the chorus and you just took it away from us. Oh my God. I mean, that, that, 
at some point, that's the worst to me. Like that's the person that just loses the right to uh, to <laughs> have the, the the controls of the radio at all. I will tell you a fun fact. For years, and I don't know if it's still this way, but when you wrote songs and pitched songs in Nashville for years, uh, you would give the demos over to the people, and they they'd listen to like a verse and a chorus, and then they would just you know they turn the volume down and move to the next song. Right. Like they never really listened the whole thing. Yeah, so for the longest that. time, I just wanted to turn in a song to, and just use like the f word three hundred times in the second <laughs> verse to see if anyone ever picked up on it like you'd know you know why you can't do that perfect example of why you can't do that phil collins i could feel it in the air tonight oh god he doesn't drop that until like the end of the song you get the and you would miss the whole thing if you waited you would miss the whole thing also by the way you mentioned uh djs who move on and their funny names my friend adam who likes to DJ his own parties and stuff and sometimes on our spring training triple dj his dj name is dj street meat because one time during a particularly uh, long and substance-filled evening, someone had purchased one of those bacon-wrapped hot dogs on the se- on the street after a club night out. And they went back and he was DJing and he found it after passing out for three hours next to him and just ate it. And everyone wondered <laughs> where the street meat had come from and no one could recall having bought it or how long it had been there. And now he's DJ street meat. That's you know that's not a bad DJ. If you had a DJ name, what would it be? Making bad decisions and oh, that is and hanging out with my friends and <laughs> and she's spiraling again. Everybody catch her! Oh no, catch her! It's she's the end of the show again. It's the end of a show, and I'm losing it again. This keeps happening. Oh man, uh, bring we, me back! Bring me back! We just had Joe Fortenbaugh on, and by the way, they do great work. If you've never checked out the Daily Wager, really good show. Uh, to get you sort of caught up on what you need to know, and uh, they do some good work there, Joe, uh, with some greatness. But really importantly, uh, I think we learned from Joe how difficult it is to identify the biggest song of the summer for the last 25 years. Also mm-hmm. identifying how many musical trends have changed in 25 years. Like, that's that's a long window. Even though you don't think of it in the moment, then you start thinking about, oh, like you had Genie in a Bottle at one point you were discussing. I brought in It's Gonna Be Me. Like, you're talking about songs that... You know, I barely even think of being in the conversation that absolutely were defining for their years. Yeah, I mean, like part of the the decision making for this is always going to be your age and what was going on with your life when these came out. Because somebody who's in high school or college is probably going to have such a great affinity to a song that took over the whole summer and they were out, you know, driving to the beach with their friends and stuff versus some summer of, I don't know, 2020 when you didn't leave your house, right? So it's going to depend on what was going on in your life at the time. In fact, we have been accused of showing our age with our top three. I put it out there and asked, you know, whose top three song of the summer list is better. Uh, We chose based on the songs being big and good. That's what she said. And so far, most of the responses have just been, you guys are old. Oh, good. (laughs) Good, good, good. Because, of course, none of our songs are from the last, like, five years. Um, But but, uh, most people are also saying that uh, mine's better. Well, that, there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, that most people usually say that in, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> I am a little surprised to hear that Orlovsky got any uh, heat for Cruz. I mean, I don't love the song, Ugh. but I mean, it was by it was the most played song in America for a year. I, I mean, I don't even Cruz, know how it goes, baby. You know, yeah. Oh God! Ew! I hate it so much. I mean, no wonder. Uh, that, oh that, and, no. Again, when I when I stopped touring, it was oh, no. at that point the biggest selling song of all time in country music. Oh my music. gosh! So One of my that favorite song things- alone, as of 2018. So this number will be now, bigger now. That song had gone 11 times platinum 
in 2018. I mean, it's so so catchy. I get it. It's so catchy. It's also so annoying. One of my favorite things is when we started hosting together and the production crew asks for a list of songs that we would want as our bumpers in and out of segments just to get a feel to like get, you know, good energy going. And I was thinking, okay, this guy's coming from a music background. I can't wait to hear some of his favorites. Going to learn some new groups. And it was like all bubblegum pop. Oh, yeah. Just like the most girly. It was like a 12-year-old girl had made her playlist. Uh, it was amazing. I just so, love, I love your your sense of, and by love I mean I'm I'm constantly amused by it. the The funniest thing is that there, <laughs> I'm one of two ways with it. I'm either all in on whatever the bubblegum pop of that era is, or I'm completely into British singer songwriters. Like there's no in the, in between. Oh, for me. oh like, so Adele so like, is like the jam. Uh, James Arthur. Like James Arthur is the. Oh. I, I will run through walls to listen to anything that James Arthur ever records. But that will just run you down. Like when Spotify says you might also like on the James Arthur playlist, I'm going to like whichever <laughs> angst-filled piano ballad is coming from some British guy that sounds like he had his heart ripped out by some girl. Like I, that's that's what I listen to ninety like percent of the time. Oh, uh, yeah, James like, uh, Blunt will give you the sad singer-songwriter from England, and he's a good, he's good Twitter follow. Got good clapbacks. And I, I, I like a little bit more like soul in my. In, oh, okay. In my, like, All right. You know, Maybe James like, Blake then. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. You know, go check out James Arthur. I'm just telling you, go okay. check out James right. Arthur. You'll be glad you did. Although you might spend the night crying out of, out of your mind. All right, Freddie. I mean, we're already there. Up. As we By know, the, it's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Coleman, sneaky music nerd. Like, he's all oh, up on it. Let's Freddie ask and Fitzsimmons coming up next. Yes, we are. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.